0: If you haven't already, please open your Bible to Romans chapter 8. I'm glad you're here with us today, worshiping God with us and uh, celebrating Advent. Our celebration, as you heard, is going to culminate uh, Tuesday night at 630. So if you can be here, it'd be great to have you. Let me open up with prayer. Our Father in heaven. Thank You for giving us this time and this Word and Your Spirit so that what is about to happen could be sacred and unlike anything else we read or or listen to or think about. Now, You know God not because of anything Good about my own words or persuasive about my outline, but because the words that I'm planning to preach are your words. And nothing affects souls like your word and your truth. So, as we've been building our anticipation this whole month of Christmas Day, we pray in the next few moments you would build our anticipation to hear Your Word preached. God, I pray You change me and transform me even as I think again through the words I've prepared to say. I pray especially that Your Scripture would be sweet like honey to everyone here. I'm sure in a group this size that there's some who've come in and Your Word is silly to them or bitter to them. But I pray that it become wisdom and and sweetness to them today, and that they would see you as you are, and they'd be delighted at what they see and they love you like they've never loved you before. I pray that for all of us, God, including your children who are here today, your people who are here today. and I pray we would fall more in love with you. I pray our affections for you would deepen and our devotion to You would increase as You increase and we decrease. We pray these things hopefully and with great confidence because we're praying them in the name above all names, the name of Your Son, Jesus, the Christ. Amen. Amen. In the advent of Christ, we find the advent of at least four things. And these four things are the themes that we've taken up each advent Sunday in December. So with the arrival of Christ, which is what Advent means, arrival, the coming, with the first arrival of Christ, we have the arrival of hope, we have the arrival of love, we have the arrival of joy, and we have the arrival of peace. Apart from Christ, the world is hopeless, it's loveless, it's without joy, it's without peace. That's not to say it's not without a form of hope a form of love and a form of joy and a form of peace, but if we were to hold them up to what God describes in His Word as truly these things, we find that what we find in the world is counterfeit. And it's bringing us up short. But true hope, so this is what we mean, is only in Christ. True love, only found in Christ. True joy. True peace. It's interesting. Created in the image of God, we have been wired to thirst and hunger and look for these things. We want hope. We want love. We want joy. We want peace. These are things we're all in pursuit after. But our souls will not be satisfied until our souls find satisfaction in Christ. That's what we're saying. So hope, love, joy. And today we come to peace. And in the arrival of Christ... I would say that the greatest arrival of all is peace. There is hope, there is love, there is joy, but the greatest arrival is peace. It is our, as believers, it is our greatest jewel to be had. Hope is a jewel, love is a jewel, joy is a jewel, but peace is our greatest jewel, and in fact, it's foundational to all of the other jewels that we might have in Christ. So trying to say that in a in a big, big way, that with the arrival of Christ, we do have the arrival of peace, and this is the greatest arrival that, that we have. Now, of course, when we're speaking of peace, though, we're talking about, well, we're not talking about peace. Uh, peace horizontally okay peace with your friends and peace with your family and peace with your neighbors and peace in your church and maybe you'll have that peace and maybe you won't god does bring a unity in his body and in his people but Jesus also said that he came to divide and so we shouldn't be surprised if even as christians we don't have a as much horizontal peace as as we would like. It doesn't mean that when we say that the Christian life is a life of peace, it doesn't mean a life that is free from conflict. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Because I wasn't sure if I was a Christian until you said that. Because I've got conflict in my life. And I've got turmoil in my life. I've got stress in my life. I have anxiety in my life. I have struggle in my life. So we're talking about peace with God. The peace you really want, the peace you really need. Vertical peace. Vertical peace, not so much horizontal. And this is the peace that the world needs. What the world needs now is not love. Not going to sing it. (laughs) What the world needs now is not joy, primarily. What the world needs now is peace and this is because of the trouble we're in this is because of the trouble we're in there is a great problem that we find ourselves in many of us don't know it at some point you got to know it we're here to talk about it today Because of the trouble we're in, we need peace. Man is not at peace with God, and God is not at peace with man. Things are not well between us and God. We need peace. We need peace. Man will not be at peace with God, and God will not be at peace with man apart from Christ. So with the advent of Christ, this is why we say this, comes the advent of peace. Well, let's look at peace in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. And to give you a, a heads up, three points today regarding peace. Three points. And as we go on, we'll spend more time. So we'll spend a little bit of time on point number one. We'll spend more time on point number two. And we'll spend the most of our time on point number three. So if we're 45 minutes in when I get to point number three, I'm sorry. <laughs> Romans 8, 5-8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life, And, and here's our word of the day. Peace. It's like Sesame Street, right? Got a word and it's going to show up throughout the sermon. Today's word is peace. And here we have it in Paul's writing here at the end of verse 6. And Peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so point number one. The Christian life is a life of peace. This is what we learn from Paul. You see that in verse 6? To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The Christian life we learn from Paul is a life of peace. Here what Paul is doing is he's giving us a picture. He's giving us a portrait of two men. And he's showing us how each of them live and what each of them are after. And he's telling us that these are the two categories of mankind. So you're going to fall into one of these categories. There is the man that is after the flesh. And he is held up against the picture of a man that is after the Spirit. And so you're either a man, woman, or child who is after the flesh. Or you're a man, woman, or child who is After the Spirit. But those are the two categories of man that Paul is dealing with. The Christian and the non-Christian, if you will. The Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian, what does he do? He sets his mind on the things of the flesh. What about the Christian? The Christian sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. And the Christian sets his mind on the things of the Spirit because the Christian is alive from the dead, Paul has told us. We once were dead in sin, but now we are made alive to Christ. We're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. So we've got new desires, new passions, new willingness, new relationship. Everything about us is new from the inside out. And so we're no longer setting our mind on after things of the flesh, Paul says, But now we're after the Spirit, so we're setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And then he says in verse 6, to be carnally minded. In other words, earthly minded. You're after the things of this earth and and this world and very temporal. And set your mind on the things of the flesh. What does it lead to? He tells us it's death. But to be spiritually minded is life. And then he adds the word, our word of the day, and peace. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Ask yourself, why life and peace? Why is that Paul's description of the Christian life? There are other adjectives he could use. Life and love or life and joy. In fact, if you read about the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, you find that peace actually shows up third on the list. And the first two, all right, that... Pouring out of the Christian life or love and joy. So why doesn't he say that to set the mind on the Spirit is life and love or life and joy. Rather, he says life and peace. There's something important about peace. Look at something with me. In verse 5 and 6, do you see that there's a, a positive and negative structure that Paul stresses to get his point across. So he says something negatively and then he says it positively. Then he says it negatively. Then he says it positively. This is the negative truth and here's its opposite positive truth. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's a negative, but then the positive. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It does the same thing in verse 6. Negatively first. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And then positively. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And then in verse 7, he drops that positive-negative structure. That tells us something. It means something. Why does he do that? Because in verse 7 he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And wouldn't you expect him to say, But the mind that is set on the Spirit is not hostile to God. Or when he says, the mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Why doesn't he go back and say the positive? But the mind that is set on the spirit, it does submit to God's law. It can submit to God's law. The mind that is set on the flesh does not, cannot please God. But the mind that is set on the spirit can please God. So why is it? Why doesn't Paul note the opposite positive truth of those who are after the spirit to counter what He says about those who are after the flesh in verse 7 and verse 8. And I think this is the reason. It's this word peace. It is because He has stated the opposite positive truth of those who are after the Spirit in this one descriptive word at the end of verse 6, peace. And so what is 7 and 8? What do you find there? The opposite of peace. What is the opposite of living at peace with God? Well, the mind is hostile to God. doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot. It cannot please God. What is the opposite of this? The opposite is to be at peace with God. Paul said this earlier in chapter 5 of the same book in Romans verse 1. Here's that word peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, point number one, the Christian life we're learning here from Paul is a life of peace. What kind of peace is this? It's an objective peace and a subjective peace. It's an objective peace. Something really happens between The Christian and God. There is actual relational peace. And then flowing from that, there is a subjective peace. There is an experiential peace. There is a felt peace. But objectively, when one becomes a Christian, they are at peace with God. The nature of their relationship has changed. We learn from Romans 8 that the natural man hates God. The natural man hates God. He wishes he had no God. He hates God's law. He has no interest in submitting to it. He wants what he wants. As well, verse 8, he's not even capable of loving God or feeling peace toward God because of the evil and the perversion that is within So if we're to be at peace with God, something objectively happens to change that. And now the Christian is at peace with God. There's not anger. There's not enmity. There's not war. But there's peace with God. And then from that objective reality for the Christian, based and rooted in that objective reality that now I'm at peace with God, it's not only something I know, but because I know I'm at peace with God, I feel this. It's subjective. It's experiential. There's a, a tranquility that should exist among Christians because they've been made at peace with God. So there's, a, there's an, an inner peace that comes along. Not the kind of inner peace that they talked about in one of my boys' movies, Kung Fu Panda. Not that inner peace. Inner peace where the panda sits down and holds his hands a certain way and he hums and he thinks about certain things and then there's this tranquility. But there is a peace of mind and a peace of heart and a tranquility that comes over a Christian when they understand that they are objectively at peace with God. One of the glories of the Christian life is this peace. This experienced peace. It is the end of all restlessness in a man. Before God, before Christ, before the gospel, we're restless. Looking, searching, crawling, looking for some kind of meaning, looking for contentment, looking for abiding joy, looking for satisfaction, looking for reason and purpose to live. And before Christ, life was something that just drew out of us and didn't give. Life drained us, but it didn't give anything to us and that all changes when you become a christian that stops for the christian isaiah 57:20 says the wicked are like the tossing sea and its waters toss up mire and dirt for the christian the journey for truth is over it's over we are not seekers of truth. We are finders of truth. I do not stand behind this pulpit before you seeking truth. I stand before you behind this pulpit because I've found truth. I've come to know God and to love God and to know His Word and to love His Word and to know Him and to, and to love His laws and to love His commands and to delight in Him. In that sense, we've arrived at what our soul needed to arrive at and there's now peace. There's now peace with God. Probably Augustine's most famous quote deals specifically with this. When he said, You, God, have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. You're born restless, born searching, born looking, born this way. We're restless and we are restless until we find our rest in God and God alone. This is what Solomon writes about in Ecclesiastes, if you remember. Makes it clear in the first chapter. What had Solomon done? Well, Solomon had everything that you could have. He had everything that you could have and, and then some. And he leveraged. This is what he did and how he lived his life. Much interestingly enough, the way Augustine did in his early years. But the way Solomon lived his life was to turn to everything that he had and to turn to all of his possessions and to have that be the cure for his restlessness and to find peace and joy and hope and love in the things of this world. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is telling us how he exhausted every resource this world has to offer. And then he says throughout in the beginning and again in chapter 12 vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is he saying? Saying, I've come up totally empty. I've got all this stuff, and I have all these accomplishments. And I have all this reputation and I have all this work I've done and all this good I've done and I'm still restless. It is not enough for my soul. Well, when does that come to an end, friends? It comes to an end when you come to understand the Gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, you will never have true peace until your mind is satisfied. So we're talking about real peace that's actually rooted in a reality. Not just a feeling that is detached from any reality. That's not peace. And that's going to go when reality hits, right? We're talking about peace that is rooted in truth. If you merely get, he said, some emotional or psychological experience, it may keep you quiet Can give you rest for a while. But sooner or later. A problem will arise. A situation will confront you. A question will come to your mind. Perhaps through reading a book. Or in a conversation. And you will not be able to answer. And so you will lose your peace. There is no true peace with God. Until the mind has seen and grasped and taken hold of the Gospel. The Christian life is a life of peace, a life of peace with God. Point number two. True peace is mutual. True peace is mutual. If there is to be peace between two parties, this is a two-way street. Both may be need to be at peace with one another. For there to be true peace, it has to be mutual. So it's not enough for you to say, well, I'm fine with that person. I'm at peace with that person. They also need to be at peace with you. If there's going to be reconciliation, if anything's going to be restored, if there's going to be any kind of a relationship. True peace is mutual. When we speak of peace with God or speak of peace with anyone, it is a two-way street. It is not enough for one party to be at peace with the other, which helps us to make no sense of what we are tempted to say when we say things like, I've made my peace with God. Well, that's great. Has God made his peace with you? Or maybe less silly, less offensive, more popularly said, I am at peace with God. I'm so thankful. I've said this. I am finally at peace with God. Friends, that may be great. There's a bigger question. Is God at peace with you? You may be at peace with God, but true peace is mutual. Is God at peace with you? You see, in this case, there must be Godward peace and there must be manward peace. There must be Godward peace from man to God. I am at peace with God and there must be manward peace from God extended to us. Peace with man from God. In other words, man must be at peace with God and God must be at peace with man. So to help us see this, let me let me divide the world into three categories of people. What a presumptuous thing to say, but that's what I'm going to try to do. Let me divide the world into three groups of people to illustrate this two sided coin of peace. There's a man word aspect and there is a God word aspect and both of them are necessary if there is to be true peace. So in the world there are, let me say the three categories and then we'll look at them more closely. In the world there are, number one, there are those who are not at peace with God and God is not at peace with them. No man word, no God word, no peace. Category number two, There are those who are at peace with God, but God is not at peace with them. And number three, there are those who are at peace with God, and God is at peace with them. Now, spoiler alert, that's the one you want. That's what we're headed toward. We want to have lives and be people who are at peace with God, and God is at peace with us. But that first category those who are not at peace with God and God is not at peace with them. So, Godwardly from man, we read about them in Romans 8. Godwardly from man, they are at enmity with God. If you have an NIV, it says that. If you have the ESV, it says they are hostile toward God. That's not peace. They hate God. And manwardly from God, they are under God's wrath. Man is not at peace with God. God is not at peace with man. Romans 2, five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. They are those who are not at peace with God and God is not at peace with them. And so often this man is foolishly indifferent foolishly indifferent. I don't care, he says, that God is not at peace with me. I don't want to have anything to do with God. Friends, if you're thinking that way, you're feeling that way, it's total folly. I promise you there will come a day when you will care. You will care about that and nothing else and it will be too late. Number two. Now this is the most frightening category. The most frightening category are those who are at peace with God, but God is not at peace with them. So godwardly, this man does not have a problem with God, But God has a serious problem with him. And so there is no peace. But this person doesn't know there's no peace. They think there's peace. It's a false peace. Me and God are fine. Now typically where do you find these people? Right here. You find them on the on the Christian path, if you will doing the right things, saying the right things, and because they're doing the right things and saying the right things, that's precisely why they think that they're at peace with God. But God may not be at peace with them. They've never really thought about that. They've never evaluated that. They thought the whole deal was that they were to accept God and be pleased with God, and then everything would be taken care of. But there's more to it than that. They may be on the... Christian path but they didn't get on the Christian path to use John Bunyan's illustration through the Wicket gate centuries ago John Bunyan wrote an allegory called the pilgrim's progress it's about conversion it's about the Christian life the main character is a man named Christian he could have been more creative with that one And Christian is what? He's on his way to the celestial city. He's on his way to heaven. He's on his way to be with God. And he starts off totally depressed, totally discouraged, because he understands what hopefully we'll all understand in a few minutes. There's a great burden on his back, and that burden is sin. And he's pointed to the gospel. He's pointed to Christ. He's pointed to the wicked gate. And men tell him, listen, there's a path ahead that gets to the celestial city and moves in the direction, but there's only one proper, legitimate way for you to get on that path and you've got to go through this gate. And so he does and he ends up on the path and then lots of other people are on the path. And he says, how did you guys get here? They say, oh, we found a shortcut. Because I think you're supposed to come in through the wicket gate. Friends, there are those who are not at peace with God, who think they are at peace with God because they're walking on the Christian path. They go to church. They know Bible verses. They do good deeds. They know Christianese. They know the language. And they've passed under the radar. But the question needs to be posed. Did you get here through the wicked gate? Did you get here by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because there is no other legitimate way. And you'll find that the path you think leads to the celestial city. In fact, leads to a totally different place. It's a false peace. It's an experiential peace only. He feels at peace with God. But it's a lie. You understand the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church, as we look around, and this is the visible church. These are, as far as we know, not seeing the heart, these are God's people. These are those who say they are Christians. You understand, God sees the invisible church. And the number of the invisible church and the number of the visible church are not equal, those are different numbers. And the number of the visible church is far greater than the number of the invisible church. Because what you have are people on the Christian path, religious people, nominal Christians, notional Christians... Or as the Puritans called them, mere professors who say they love Jesus, who proclaim love for Jesus, who are Christian by name only, Christian by notion only. There's actual really no devotion to Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is no peace with God, but they think they're at peace with God. We talked about this really early on in the days of Veritas Church. It was one of the early sermons I preached. It was called Healed or Deluded where we all were challenged to examine ourselves and it rattled our little church. Some of you were there and I don't think a one of us went home wondering whether or not we were a Christian. Did I take a wrong turn somewhere? Am I really? a repentant, faithful believer in Jesus Christ? So to make sense of this, to see how this works, maybe this will be helpful because this is what happens, I think, around us and among us. And this is what it looks like. How can you possibly not be at peace with God but think you're at peace with God? Well, in order to feel at peace with God, this is what we're tempted to do we're tempted to make up our own God. We're tempted to form an idol. Tempted to craft our own God. Not the God of the Bible, but a God of some of the Bible. Not the actual God as revealed in Scripture, but a God that we make up. And incidentally and curiously, this God is offended at the same things that we're offended at. And this God is accepting of the same things that we're accepting of. So the things that I'm accepting of that maybe the Bible isn't, well, God is okay with these things. And the things that really offend me that God doesn't seem offended by, well, my God is offended by these things. And so this God becomes a very accommodating God. A very accommodating God, a very convenient God. And then the result is a people who feel at peace with God. But they are not at peace with God and God is certainly not at peace with them. They are at peace with a figment of their imagination. Anyone can make up a God with his own characteristics and be at peace with that God. And many are. At peace with a figment of their imagination. They are at peace with a puppet that they have made. They are at peace with a carved mantelpiece. And it is not real and genuine peace. And so what happens to this person who has made up their own idea of a God who would never be offended by the things that they do? What happens when this person hears the Scriptures preached? Now here we're going to see why one of the reasons it's so important to preach God's Word. What happens when this person who's come up with their own idea of God, detached from Scripture, hears the Scriptures preached? Well, you'll see this person will do one of two things. Either they will deny Scripture. Oh, well, I don't think that's really God's Word. I don't really think that's who God is. I don't think this is consistent with the original manuscripts. They become an archaeologist all of a sudden and are interested in... Things that they are not interested in in any other sphere of their life. But now, I need to make this not be from God. I need to discredit it. They will either do that or they will enter into category number one and they'll hate God. They'll accept that it is God's Word and that's who God is and they'll hate Him. They'll be at enmity with Him, hostile toward Him, they awaken to the reality that the God they were worshiping is not God at all, but a God of their imagination, not God as revealed in the Bible. This is why we need gospel preaching churches, because gospel preaching churches turn number twos into either number ones or number threes. Number three Those who are at peace with God and God is at peace with them. Those who are by way of the gospel at peace with God. And this is who we have found in Romans chapter 8. Those who are after the things of the Spirit and their life is spirit and peace. And finally, number three. True peace comes only by way of the gospel. Because the only way. This is the wicked gate. This is the only way to peace with God. It must come... By way of the gospel. Now any of us, when we talk about peace with God, we, we, we want that. We may not be interested in specific terms, but we certainly want peace with God. If we think there's a God, and, and we think He's in heaven, and we think that, that the, the end of our days are going to be determined by Him, we obviously want peace with God. And so the question we ask is, how do I get that? Peace. And the answer is the gospel, but I want to slow down for just a minute. We have to slow down. We can get ourselves into trouble, especially in our culture, if we go too hard and too fast into the good news without first understanding the bad news. The bad news. Because we live in a culture that doesn't understand the bad news. The question today that most people ask is, how could God be angry with me? Now, there was a day when most people would say, how could God love me? That is not our culture. Right? we laugh. We do not ask that question. No one is thinking, how could God love me? No one is asking that today. It's how could God judge me? Well, let us understand. Before we think about the securing of peace, let's make sure we understand the need for it. Because a lot have, many have false peace. And many of them have false peace precisely because no one ever slowed down to help them understand the enmity between them and God. We need to understand that. For those of you who have been saved, salvation becomes even sweeter. So let's go ahead and trouble ourselves for a while. There is bad news that precedes the good news. And I'm going to simply declare the gospel in its entirety. And I'm going to work from three headings. God, man, and Christ. And then we'll talk about a response to it. But God, man, and Christ. Now first, as we talk about the bad news. The bad news. The first thing we must understand is God. We must understand who God is and what God is like. So number one, God, the holy and righteous creator. That's who God is. God is the holy and righteous creator. God is the sovereign creator of all things. God made you. God sustains you, which means you and I are accountable to Him. He made you. You wouldn't be here without God. You're still here because of God. He gave you life. He's giving you life. He's loving you, blessing you, caring for you. He's been kind to you. And you are accountable to Him. You're accountable to Him because He made you. Because He made you. And we may be uncomfortable with this. God owns you. He owns you. You belong to God. He thought you up. He gave you life. He tells you your purpose. He brings meaning to your life, which we learn God has made us for his glory. In fact, God has made everything for his glory. All of God's creation is so that his glory, his beauty would be displayed. In fact, John Calvin said this is what the universe is. This is what the world is. The world is a dazzling theater, he said. And what is on display in this theater? The glory of God. The world is a dazzling theater with the glory of God on display. And the sovereign God who created you is holy and righteous. He is morally perfect. He is morally pure. Remember in Isaiah 6, the prophet's eyes are open to see the Lord and the seraphim are around Him. And what are the seraphim singing? What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Or 1 John 1.5 says about our God. In Him is light. He is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Our God is good. He does all things well. He is perfect. Habakkuk 1.13 You, God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil... And cannot look at wrong. God the holy and righteous Creator. And next, we must understand who man is. If that's who God is, who is the man? We have to resist the urge here to have a God who is created in the image of man. Rather, man is created in the image of God. So we're going to God to define and understand what we need to understand. So if God is the sovereign And holy and righteous creator, who is man and what is man like? This will help us to understand the grave trouble that we're in. And so we come to number two, man, the sinner. This is not a flattering title, but it is true. Man, the sinner. Now, this is where we we have to go dark. Dark. Okay, it's going to get dark here. And our tendency is, is going to be when we hear these truths to think, is that an exaggeration? Is it really that bad? Is there that much enmity between me and God? Am I really that sinful? I'm wicked. I'm wicked. That sounds antiquated. I'm, you meant evolved. You meant good at heart. These, these are difficult to hear, especially when you're like, everything from my mom and dad to the television screen has been telling me how great I am since I was born. I mean, everything is just screaming at me how amazingly wonderful I am. I mean, I am, as far as I knew, I was at the center of the universe and the world The galaxies are revolving around me. I am great. I have so much potential. I can do anything I set my mind to. The sky is the limit. I mean, we've been indoctrinated with these things unlike any other culture in the history of mankind. We think very highly of ourselves. So this truth is a difficult one to grasp. But we've got... To see it because it diagnoses the problem. And if we do like a superficial diagnosis, you're going to get a superficial remedy and you're not actually going to be cured of your sickness. So what is the real problem? What is the real issue? Man is a sinner. God created our first parents. He put them in a beautiful paradise in a garden. We've read about this. Adam was put in this garden. He was given dominion over everything. But God reminded him that he was not autonomous, that he was not independent, that he was still under authority. And he did that by giving him one rule. God gave him a garden of yes with one tree of no in the middle of it. Because you could do anything, enjoy this, eat anything, have a wonderful time. This is for you. Enjoy it. But then God reminded him and said, but there is one rule here. So that Adam would be reminded that he's under the rule of the king. That he is a loyal subject, a joyful subject of the king. God said, you do not eat this fruit. And if you eat of that fruit, the consequences will be big. You will die. Probably didn't even know what that meant. But you will surely die. And then the dragon came into the garden. Satan came into the garden and tempted Adam. And you remember what he tempted Adam to do? He tempted Adam to shed his vice regency and try to take hold of the crown himself. He was there as a regent. He was there as a representative. He was there as an ambassador to rule for God, but under God. And the temptation was God doesn't really have your best interest in mind, Adam. God's withholding things from you. It could be so much better eat this fruit, disobey God, come to understand what it's like to assert your authority against this God. And if you do this, what was, the, what was the lure? You will be like God. And so he did this. He shed his standing with God and he rejected God as his king. It was rebellion. It was treason. This was a kingdom and God was king. And he sided with God's arch enemy, who is treason. And the Bible calls this treason, sin. And its effects were physically and spiritually cataclysmic. The king's joyful subjects were then cast out of the garden. Their fellowship with God was broken. Their hearts shriveled. Their minds filled with selfish thoughts. Their eyes were darkened to beauty. Good spiritual life ended and they began moving toward the new and inescapable reality of physical death. It was bad. That's why it's called the fall. It was a fall. Now this connects to us because the effects of sin were not confined only to Adam and Eve. This horror in the garden was not contained. This is not an Adam and Eve only problem. It has spread to every one of their descendants. And you and I are each descendants of Adam. It has spread to every one of their descendants. The guilt of their sin has been imputed. And the thirst for sin has been passed on. And so you and I are all born Thirsting for sin, thirsting to disobey God, hungering for rebellion, desiring to go our own way, not wanting to submit to God or his law, finding his total authority in our life repulsive. We run from it because of our thirst for sin. And so you and I, down the road here, were born in a state of sin. We were each born as as children, as citizens of a kingdom of God-haters. This is the kingdom that all of us were born into. This is the world that we live in. This is the universe we live in. We were born as citizens of a kingdom of God-haters. And so it was only a matter of time before each of us, you and me, began manifesting this rebellion to God. One author said, sin is in us and of us, not just on us. Have this idea of sin, if we grasp it at all, it's just something I'll wash off. I'll just clean up. I'll just do good deeds and do enough good things. I'm a, it's a scale, right? It's a scale. I come to understand sin. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's... Oh. I, I can't... Don't do that. I did that. The scale's tipping. Don't even think about doing it. Right? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Well, oh, I don't do any of those bad things. What do you think about them? Yeah. Scale keeps tipping. So then we invent this idea. Well, will just tip the scales. Just tip them. That'll be the ladder that I prop up against heaven. They start putting my good things in that. Stop doing these bad things. Stop doing the good things. And the good things are what I consider good things, and the bad things are what I consider bad things. And somehow this will get me right with God. And so I'll just keep piling them in and throwing them in. If I do enough good deeds, the scale will be tipped, and I'll clean myself up. I'll wash myself. The problem is much deeper than that. Sin is not just on us. It is in us and of us. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. It is who we are. We are born as citizens of a kingdom of God haters. Let me load your mind with a few burdening texts from the Bible. Romans 3.10 None is righteous. No, not one. These are truths that we're not likely to find accessible today. We hear the opposite of this. You know of preachers on television that I'd just love to give this text to. Say, man, preach that one. That is rough. There was a day I thought I was good. Honestly, I thought I was one of the good guys. That's why God saved me, because I was good. And I was seeking after Him. In fact, I went to a church that was seeking after me and sensitive to me as a seeker. And I came to, I thought, become a Christian. I got on the Christian path, but I didn't go the right way. I didn't go the right way. and we come to understand the truth, no one seeks after God. Christian, do you think you're here because you sought God and found Him? God sought you and found you. You think you jumped into His arms? He wrapped His arms around you. No one is good. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah fifty nine two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Romans one twenty one for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man is a sinner. And friends, this is why there is no peace between us and God. There can be no peace between us and God if this is the end of the story. God is holy and righteous. We have dishonored him. We have disobeyed him. We have disregarded him. Godwardly, we are not born at peace with God. We are hostile toward God. And let's just talk briefly about God's reaction to this rebellion. What is God's reaction to this rebellion? How does God deal with this treason? How does God deal with this injustice? Does God sweep it under the carpet? Does God wink at it? Does God say, oh, it's okay? Well, the biblical answer is, is the word wrath. Wrath. It is the wrath of God because we are hostile toward God, because we are at enmity with God, God is full of wrath toward us. Listen to these verses. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 5.6. Let no one deceive you with empty words For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in the end, there are those who will try to run from God's wrath. Revelation 6.16, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, fearful because the wrath of God is terrible. Now, wrath is not a part of God's nature. Holiness is a part of God's nature. Because God is holy, His reaction to our sin is wrath and anger. See, God's wrath is poured out on sinners because of who they are, not because of who God is. It is God's holy reaction to their sin. It's different when God loves a sinner. When God loves you, He's not loving you because of who you are. It's because of who He is. But when He is wrathful, it's not because of who He is. It is because of who you are. Wrath is not the nature of God. Love is the nature of God. And holiness is the nature of God. And because God is holy, He will not sweep rebellion and treason and disobedience and making a mess of His world and His creation and His people. He will not take this lightly. He will deal with it. And he will banish those who have stayed citizens of a God hating kingdom their entire life, and he will send them to the place called hell where that citizenship continues. God's wrath is not God losing his temper, which is how you might have understood it. It's not, it's righteous. It's not God flying off the handle. God's wrath is the determined, willing, visceral reaction of a holy God against all unholiness and rebellion against Him, which results in judgment, condemnation, and death. So no one is righteous. We've established that. And one day, the whole world will be held accountable. So this is truth. No one is is righteous and everyone will be held accountable to God. So either you disbelieve that or you believe that and need to find a remedy and a solution to the trouble that we're in. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is upon those who are not submitted to His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, some people may say this, and you may have heard this. Well, I follow the New Testament God. The God of love. It's a perception. It's not a good one. It's a misconception. But the God of the Old Testament, that's the God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament is the God of love. He was so cranky for so long, angry, upset, and finally finally he came around and now he's and now here's Jesus and dying for his people and Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Old Testament, not so much. I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm a red letter Christian. I love Jesus. I don't want to hear about this God of wrath in the Old Testament. So let me just say that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is not the God of love. There is wrath and love in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. There is wrath and love in the New Covenant. In fact, both love and wrath are intensified in the New Covenant and in your New Testament. If you've been coming to our Genesis series, I hope you know that God is not merely a God of wrath in your Old Testament. He is a very gracious and loving God. A very gracious and loving God. And the charge that the New Testament is just all about love and there's no wrath, you forget that we've got hell in the New Testament. And that's a big one. That's a big one. That's in the New Testament. There is wrath. There is love. Jonathan Edwards said, and this is the danger we're in, unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. But. You should be ready for this now. You should be glad there's a but. But is one of the best words in your Bible. It is. They was looking one way, was looking one way, but oh, good, good. There's something else. There's, and what does the but come before? Good news. But there is good news. There's more to the story. We have to keep reading. This is only the bad news. Wrath is not God's only reaction to the human condition. We're gonna find that God is also merciful. And we hear of it even in Jonathan Edwards' quote. Unconverted men. There's a qualifier there. What kind of man? Unconverted. So is there another kind of man that can be saved? Is there hope? Could there be salvation for us? With the advent of Christ comes the advent of peace. Now, understanding God, understanding man, we must understand Christ the Savior. We should be ready for that. We should be troubled by now. We should be unhappy by now. We should be unsettled by now. The good news of Christ the Savior. God is merciful and kind to undeserving sinners. God sent His own and only Son, holy and righteous Son, Jesus, to live perfectly on behalf of His people. And God sent Jesus to bear the sins of His people and endure the wrath of God in their place. That's what we must understand about Christ. That's the Gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news is not the Bible. The good news is not God loves you. The good news is not Jesus loves you. The good news is Jesus came and lived and suffered and died in the place of sinners so that they could be at peace with God. That's the Gospel. I don't want you to have a superficial understanding of the good news It might be better than you think. It's good to grow in our understanding of big words and at least the concepts they represent. Propitiation. Maybe the most beautiful word in your Bible. Penal substitution. These are glorious concepts. What is this? You remember... Shortly after sin entered the world, God began encouraging His people by making promises to them. And He started turning the dimmer up of how they were going to be saved and how they were going to be rescued from their sin. And throughout their history, until Jesus, you can see God teaching them that the penalty for their sin could be removed if someone or something would die in their place. We read about it in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is spared from having to sacrifice his son Isaac. He looks at his son Isaac on the way up to the mountain and he says, God will provide the lamb. Now God provides a substitute, but He didn't provide a lamb, He provided a ram. And so God's people... We're constantly looking at one another throughout history saying, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the one who will finally die in our place? They celebrated the day of atonement once a year. The punishment for the sins of the people would be deferred if they would make a sacrifice, if blood would be shed, if something would die in their place. They were learning that it was possible to be forgiven and it was possible to have peace with God if there was a death in your place so would sacrificed these lambs to appease the wrath of God and then one day John the Baptist is preaching the gospel and he sees Jesus and of all the things he could call him do you remember what he hollered out Behold, the Lamb of God. Why did he say that? This is the one who will die in the place of his people. And this is what we find on the cross. Jesus bore the sins of his people and endured the fury of God who turned away in disgust and poured out his wrath he took the punishment on himself and secured forgiveness, making them righteous in God's sight, and qualifying them to share in the inheritance of the kingdom. Second Corinthians five twenty one For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Isaiah fifty three six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him that's Christ the iniquity of Of us all. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God. He propitiated the wrath of God. In the place of his people. This is why the cross was so painful. This is why Jesus was crying. And sweating blood. And begging for another way. The night before the cross. You ever wonder why God was sweating blood and crying and begging for a way out. Can you imagine the enormity of the pain he knew he was about to endure? And just a hint of it before the cross as he began, I believe, to bear the sins of his people was unbearable even for God. There are martyrs who have come down the line who didn't sweat blood and cry the night before they were killed for what they believed. But what was it that Jesus knew He was about to suffer? The wrath of God. If you diminish the wrath of God, you diminish the cross and you distort the cross and you miss the beauty of the love of Christ on the cross. The physical pain, the nails, the thorns, and the spear was nothing compared to the spiritual and relational pain our Lord endured for His people. For the first time in eternity, His Father looked at Him with disgust and turned away. The whole universe went dark. He was bearing the sins of His people. Because God the Father and God the Son had decided... That this was the best way to showcase the glory of God, and it was the best way and the only way to rescue a sinful, rebellious, treasonous people. Friends, that's the gospel. That is the good news of what Christ has done. He died, was buried, and rose again. Rose again. And that's why we listen to the gospel. Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. We don't believe the gospel. He's just dead like everyone else. Can't save us. Can't even save himself from death. But it's as simple as this. If somebody rises from the dead, you believe whatever they tell you. Is that simple. That's amazing. You were dead and now you're not. I don't have a category for that. What, tell me what is truth. Okay. Yes, sir. That's what He did. He vindicated everything He ever said when He was resurrected from the dead. And then finally, what's the response? How do I, right here, right now, come to be included in that salvation? What makes this good news for me and not just for someone else? And the answer is faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Not saying a prayer Unless part of saying that prayer is your heartfelt faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Jesus said when He first started preaching, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the Gospel. This is the wicked gate. This is the way by which you enter the pathway to God. Faith and repentance. His free gift of salvation is for those and those alone who repent and believe in Jesus, who live to please Him. They will receive the promise of eternal life. Those who place their faith in Christ. Repentance is turning away from sin. Faith is turning toward God. Repentance is hating sin, turning from sin running from sin. And faith is relying on God. You're not saved by anything you do. When we say you're saved by faith alone, faith is not something you do that saves you. Faith is taking hold of what God has done. Martin Luther says, faith is the ring that clasps the jewel. That's what faith is. Faith is you come up to a flooded river and there's no way across except a bridge and you walk over the bridge. That's faith. You didn't do it yourself. It was the bridge. Faith is jumping into a swimming pool, and you can't swim. But Jesus is in the swimming pool, and He's catching you. That's how it's worked at our house the last several years. Got a swimming pool, and there's a certain rite of passage with our boys, and it's jumping off the diving board into the deep end with no life jacket. It's part of becoming a man in the Myers household. You do that, you're on your way to manhood. You don't do that, and the jury is out. We're not sure if you can't do that. And so there's this progression. There's no way I'm not getting near the diving board. Then there's jumping off the edge. Then there's jumping off the diving board with a life preserver on. And then what's the next step? No life preserver. But the first time any of them do it, Blaze, my four-year-old, did it for the first time this last summer. You going to do it today? No. You going to do it today? No. You going to do it today? No. And then one day? Yes. All right. Now, the first time he does it, where's dad, do you think? I'm in the deep end. I'm in the deep end. I got my arms out. He can't swim. This isn't going to go well if I play a little joke on him. I can't do that. So what do I say? Something like this. Blaze, trust me. Literally would say that. Blaze, does your dad love you? Yes. Blaze, am I going to let you sink to the bottom? No. Blaze, can you trust me? Okay. Jump. Jump. Now, what is he saying and what are we saying when we come to Christ? Christ, if you, this is faith, if you don't catch me, I'm done. I'm done. I cannot do this. Have mercy on me, Jesus. Take hold of me, Jesus. Then and only then shall we have peace with God. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for truth that You give us. I pray that Now that your gospel has been preached, that you would continue the work of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of these men and women here today. God, that you would comfort your children and you would uncomfort those who would be your children. I pray you settle some of us and unsettle others. God, and I pray that if there are some here today who have dismissed this truth for so long, that You would no longer let them dismiss it. And that Your truth would conquer their unbelieving heart. We love You and give You praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.